Hello, 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 and welcome back to Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. Thank you so much for coming back. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Gallup, and I have a bonus episode for you this week. I hope to wrap up the people of Oregon State Hospital in two episodes, but these stories were just too good to speed through them. So in this episode, I'll be discussing four of the most notorious escapes throughout the history of the hospital. So come on in, make yourself comfortable as we go behind the walls of Oregon State Hospital. So often when people think about psych hospitals and the patients that do live behind the walls, the worst types of people come to mind. Psychopaths plotting their great revenge on society, raving lunatics who ravage entire towns. And when they think of someone who's escaped from an asylum, they think of some crazed axe-wielding murderer lusting for blood. Obviously, these ideas come from somewhere, usually from people's imaginations, although there certainly have been times when very dangerous criminals have escaped and caused damage. Fortunately, those stories are somewhat rare. Often the patients who do escape from psych hospitals are more of a danger to themselves than to anyone else. Some struggle with self-harm and suicidal intent, while others are unable to care for themselves well enough to survive in the community. Statistically speaking, people diagnosed with severe mental illness are more often victims of violence rather than perpetrators of violence. And that's a really important point for me. Um, it's really important to me that people understand that. Now, that doesn't mean that people aren't capable of committing heinous acts. Some certainly do. But in my experience, those folks often act out of paranoia and fear. They may genuinely believe that they are acting in self-defense or defending someone else. And that's really what I find the most tragic. They may think they're doing the right thing, and soon they're being criminally punished for it. And some of them really struggle with that. It's hard for those of us who have never been locked up to imagine the sense of despair and sort of claustrophobia that we might feel if we were incarcerated. In the previous episode, we heard the story of Reverend David C. Snyder and learned about how he was punished with electric shock just by catching a staff member who was drinking on the job. What they did to him wasn't fair and it wasn't right. And I wonder if I had been in his shoes, I wonder what I might have thought, what I may have done. Would I have tried to stand up for myself and resist the treatment? Would I have tried to run away? I really don't know. So in this episode, I'm going to look at four notable escapes from Oregon State Hospital. Since the asylum was opened in 1883, there have been many escapes and escape attempts from the hospital. I can't possibly list them all, but here are the four that captured my attention. The first is the most dangerous escape during Dr. Calbreath's tenure as superintendent, which occurred on October 9th, 1903, when five patients managed to sneak out of the main hospital and the asylum farm, almost undetected. Only three of the five escapees were named in the press following the incident. They included Oliver Marshall, John Marshall, who is actually not related to Oliver Marshall, and Joseph Eldridge. Oliver Marshall, aged 30, was the most notorious of the five escapees, at least according to the newspapers. He and his younger brother, William, had been convicted of manslaughter for killing their neighbor, James Reed, in self-defense during a dispute in April, April 1898. 
Oliver's brother, William, was sentenced to eight years in prison, but was pardoned by the governor in 1900 because of his age at the time of the offense. He was 17. And because he was said to have saved his brother's life from Reed. His brother, Oliver, however, was sentenced to 10 years in prison and began serving time in July 1898. After meeting with the penitentiary doctor, he was deemed insane and was transferred to the insane asylum in December 1899. Records seem to cast doubt onto whether or not Oliver was actually mentally ill. Uh, so we made his first escape attempt in January on January 12, 1902, and this is where records differ. According to Diane L. Gores Gardner, Oliver had somehow gotten possession of a spare key, but that this was discovered before he could exit the building. However, according to a newspaper article from the Capital Journal dated October 10, 1903, Oliver's first escape had been successful, and he'd made it all the way home to Baker County. An earlier article from the Statesman Journal dated January 12, 1902, indicates that Oliver may have fashioned his own key made from aluminum as a means of escape. At the time of the writing, he had not yet been found. If it's true that he made his way all the way from Salem to Baker County, that's pretty impressive. For anyone listening who's not from Oregon, the distance between the insane asylum in Salem and Oliver's home in Baker County is well over 350 miles away and takes about seven or eight hours to drive there. But regardless of what actually happened, Oliver was either brought back to the, the asylum or never left the asylum uh, until his second escape on October 9th, 1903. At that time, he was housed on Ward 31, a unit for violent criminals, along with Joseph Eldridge. I couldn't find any additional information about Eldridge other than his role in the 1903 escape. Of course, there are no details about how the five men concocted their escape plan or where they were intending to go. But according to newspapers after the incident, here's what happened. Shortly before dusk on Thursday, October 8th, 1903, three patients from the asylum farm escaped and presumably waited a safe distance for Oliver Marshall and Joseph Eldridge to join them. So how did Oliver and Joseph manage to escape a high security ward for the criminally insane? Here's what the Statesman Journal indicated. Quote, Ward 31 is located on the third floor of the building, and the patients managed to smuggle some tool into their, their room with which they removed the fastenings of the iron window guards. After removing this obstacle, they tore their blankets into strips and tying these together had sufficient rope to reach the ground. After fastening one end in their room, the patients slid down the improvised rope to freedom. The escape of the two men was discovered by white night watchman James Neal at 1.30 o'clock a.m., and as soon as daylight came, a search was instituted for the missing patients. Eldridge was soon found roaming around on the lawn near the building and was promptly locked up again. End quote. An addendum to the Statesman Journal later that day suggested that Oliver Marshall met up with one of the other escapees from the asylum farm, and they all headed north. Oliver and one of the other escapees were captured in Oregon City about 40 miles uh, north of Salem, and that the hospital officers had gotten the location of the other two escapees. All of them were promptly returned to the asylum within 48 hours of their escape. The second escape requires a bit of disturbing background, 
So I want to offer a trigger warning here for sexual abuse involving cults. And fast forward about two minutes if you'd like to skip the background section. This is the escape story of Addie Bray. Now, I feel like I could fall down a rabbit hole of this cult because it is so complex. And I wonder actually if other there are any other podcasts that have tried to uh, cover it or have covered it. Anyway, I'll, I'll try to convey just what's essential. In an article about this cult by Teresa McCracken, uh, she explains it as follows, quote, In 1903, Edmund Krefeld, a 33-year-old German immigrant and former Salvation Army captain, persuaded about 20 Salvation Army soldiers in Corvallis to join his church, the Brides of Christ. Townspeople referred to the group as the Holy Rollers because they rolled on the floor for hours during their services. According to news reports, Krefeld preached that one of his followers was destined to be the mother of the second Christ, that he needed to purify them by laying his hands on them, and that they rolled around while almost nude, that they practiced free love, and that mothers were debauched in front of their children, end quote. Yuck. So this guy is obviously really disgusting and sounds like a quintessential cult leader. So in 1904, the townspeople of Corvallis actually tarred and feathered him and chased him out of town. But many of his followers continued to walk around barefoot and nearly nude and practice his teachings. They kept rolling on the floor and claiming to receive messages from God. And it was extreme enough behavior to warrant concern from many people in the community, including judges. And anyone from the cult over 18 was sent to Oregon State Insane Asylum. Anyone under 18, because unfortunately there were children subjected to these beliefs, was sent to the Boys and Girls Aid Society in Portland. Among the women who were sent to the asylum was 22-year-old Addie Bray, who was admitted on May 6, 1904. During her mental examination, she was deemed, quote, perfectly rational on all ordinary subjects, but when the subject of her particular belief was touched upon, a complete consuming delusion was manifest, end quote. That really sounds like typical brainwashing by, by a cult. It should also be noted that Addie did not live with her family of origin, so it's possible she may have been vulnerable. She may have felt welcomed into the Brides of Christ community. Maybe she just liked walking barefoot. (laughs) Who knows? But once she got to the asylum, it's clear she was unhappy there. Just over a month after her admission on June 7th, 1904, Addie vanished, only to turn up later in Corvallis. Her story was chronicled in the Corvallis Gazette Times several days later on June 11th, 1904. Quote, a tedious journey of 30-odd miles on foot, with nothing but a few strawberries to eat, was an act Tuesday by Addie Bray, one of the Holy Roller Girls, recently sent from Corvallis to the insane asylum. The trip was from the asylum farm to Corvallis, and the distance was covered between four in the morning and seven in the evening. Considering that Miss Bray is a frail young woman, suffering with a religious mania, the feat takes on the character of the unusual. She managed to escape from the attendants at the asylum farm about four o'clock in the morning, and at once started for Corvallis. How many of the roads she traveled was unacquainted with is not known, but she managed to thread them with sufficient certainty to reach the Albany Bridge at two o'clock in the afternoon. 
Passing over it, she found a secluded spot on the side and there rested until four o'clock, after which she resumed her journey. A few minutes after seven, she passed through Corvallis and made her way to the home of Victor Hurt, south of Mary's River. There she was given food and kindly treated, and her arrival reported to the authorities, end quote. And just a quick side note here. I assume that Addie knew Victor Hurt, uh, the man whose house she arrived at, because there was also another couple in the Brides of Christ made, named um, Mr. and Mrs. Frank Hurt, who were both also sent to the asylum. It wasn't clear in the records if Victor and Frank Hurt were related, so I'm just making an assumption. But regardless, she felt safe going to that home and got the care she needed while also alerting the authorities. So the article continues, quote, Miss Bray is apparently not improved in mental condition. When taken to the sheriff's office, pending the return to Salem, she refused to be seated in a chair, but insisted while she waited in sitting on the linoleum with which the floor is covered. She was asked to sit on a chair, but persistently refused to do so. When a cushion was offered her, but this too, she declined. At the home of J.D. Wells, where she was taken to wait the arrival of an asylum attendant, she manifested the same stolid regard for the conveniences that sane people are wont to utilize. She sat on the floor with her head bowed. Asked by Mrs. Wells if she was sick, Miss Bray replied in the negative, adding that she was only engaged in prayer. During most of the hour or two that she was at the house, she maintained this attitude. When food was offered her at the dinner hour, she refused it. She started for Salem in charge of an as asylum attendant early in the afternoon of Wednesday. This case, though not in any sense unlikely nearly all the others of the, the sect, is deplorable. Miss Bray is a graduate of the Corvallis Public Schools and is of esteemable character and amiable disposition. Her gentle traits always endeared her to those with whom she came in contact. Her victimization by the despicable teacher's teachings of the villain Crefield is a condition that every respectable citizen would like to see avenged, end quote. Woo! <laughs> Journalists from 1904 really don't mince words, do they? I just want to read that last part again. Her victimization by the despicable teachings of the villain Crefield is a condition that every respectable citizen would like to see avenged. Hoo-hoo. Addie Bray remained at the asylum until December 1904. A December 10th news article from the Corvallis Gazette Times describes her change. Quote, Mrs. Frank Hurt and Miss Addie Bray arrived Thursday from Salem and are now at the Hurt home in this city. All of the members of the family are again at the fireside, fully restored in mind and fast regaining bodily strength. Almost the unanimous testimony of each is that in the present reunion, there is apparent wakening from a long nightmare, a fact that confirms the view that many have long held, that it was hypnotic influence that was responsible for manifestations or religious zeal during the, the recent months. Those best in position to know are fully convinced this is a, the correct theory, and those who passed under its influence and suffered from it were helpless under the will of a mind that in some way held control of their acts. Such things be in the world, and it is not of the remarkable that the influence suggested is responsible for all that transpired. 
Of those recently at Salem, only one is left at the hospital, and she is expected home before a very long time. All of the others are fully restored, and the end of the unfortunate chapter is here, end quote. I would argue, from a trauma-informed perspective, that the hard work was just beginning. But I hope that Addie and the others were able to find healing and a healthy sense of belonging. As for Edmund Crefield, the leader of the cults, he only spent two years in prison for his many crimes. After his release, he and his remaining followers went up and down the Oregon coast before deciding to move their sect to British Columbia. But on the way... George Mitchell, Mitchell, the brother of a woman who had been sexually abused by Crefield, tracked him down and murdered Crefield near Seattle. His death appears to have ended the saga of the Holy Rollers and the Brides of Christ. <clears throat> the third escape I'll discuss is a doozy. One of the men involved in this escape, William Bowen, could offer enough fodder for an entire podcast all about him. So if anybody has extra time and wants to do a podcast on William Bowen, go for it. There was so much information about him that I actually sort of gave up at one point because I knew he would just continue committing crimes and escaping and committing crimes and escaping. So with that in mind... Let me tell you the story of William Bowen and the escape of 1933. William Bowen was born in 1891 in Sioux City, Iowa. I couldn't find any information about his childhood or his family, uh, interestingly enough. But in one interview, when asked about how his mother died, Bowen reportedly said, quote, just make it blank, end quote. Ooh, something about that doesn't sit right with me. Uh, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy and served in World War I until he was honorably discharged after being wounded. He was sent to Walter Reed Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Later, Bowen would blame his head injury for his long list of criminal offenses. Without more background information, it's hard to know how legitimate this could be. Um, if he had had no criminal behavior before, beforehand, it could be possible, but... Given the nature of the offenses we'll discuss, I kind of doubt that a head injury could have caused or worsened his criminal behavior. Prior to arriving at Oregon State Hospital, Bowen had built quite a name for himself. He had already escaped from various jails and psych hospitals, including institutions in Fort Stylicum, Washington, uh, which is now Western State Hospital, uh, places in Lincoln, Nebraska, and Farmington, Missouri, Williams, excuse me, Bowen's crime of choice was forging and cashing bad checks. He was known by law enforcement as the Prince of Swindlers, and he managed to stay undercover because most of his bad checks were low stakes, so they didn't generally raise suspicion. He used 49 different aliases to conceal his identity and went on to commit crimes in 47 different states. Bowen was arrested in Illinois in 1916 on the charge of passing bad checks in Oregon. According to records, he feigned insanity by attempting to hang himself in his jail cell, ripped his undershirt in court, and claimed to be a Canadian soldier on furlough. He told officers that he was worried he would have troubles getting out of the hospital, but also said confidently, quote, I'll get out, though, if they put me there, end quote. He was subsequently admitted to Oregon State Hospital on October 11, 1916, and sent to the ward for the criminally insane. 
Four months later, on February 25th, 1917, Bowen was part of a group on the ward that caused a riot that led to the death of staff member P.B. Fitch. Owen, Bowen was transferred a month later to Stockton, California on a bogus check charge. Bowen served his sentence in Stockton, but was later sent back to Oregon State Hospital years later on August 3rd, 1933. Bowen was clearly someone who could not sit still for very long and who seemed to have compulsions for committing crime. Within two months of his return to Oregon State Hospital, he was planning his next move. It's still unknown how he acquired it, likely with outside help, but Bowen soon became in possession of a hacksaw. Definitely not what you want to have uh, a psych patient in possession of. He and two other patients from his ward, Alvin Carter, age 26, and Dean Welch, age 18, carefully sawed away at the bars in their cells over the course of a week. Everything had to be done perfectly. By October 1933, only two months after Bowen's return to the hospital, he was ready. Bowen likely chose his accomplices very carefully. 26-year-old Alvin Carter had been transferred to Oregon State Hospital from Fairview Hospital, so it's likely that he had had a developmental or intellectual disability. It's possible he may have been somewhat naive or easy to persuade into joining forces with him. 18-year-old Dean Welch was very young, although he had committed a heinous crime of attempting to kill a little girl in Albany. He may have been looking at a life sentence, and wanted an easy way back to freedom. Bowen also recruited three other men for the escape. 26-year-old Elmer Becker, a barber who had been at the hospital since January 1932. 53-year-old Adolf Bowser, a butcher who had been at the hospital since July 1932. And George Farron, a 64-year-old machinist who had been at the hospital for over two years. Around 10.30 p.m. on the night of Sunday, October 8, 1933, hospital guard Charles C. Williams was making his final rounds. He came upon a dark court courtyard when suddenly, out of nowhere, a figure punched him in, in the face. He fell to the ground, and the four men beat him with his club until he was unconscious. They then stole his keys, let out two other accomplices, and fled from the hospital grounds. When the guard rega regained consciousness, he sounded the alarm. The next morning, the front page of the local newspapers alerted the community. Six criminally insane escaped from the asylum, said the front page of the Albany Democrat Herald. No trace of escaped maniacs, said the Capitol Journal. And with no idea which direction to search, law enforcement began stopping cars, trains, anywhere looking for the, the miss, missing men. Guards from the nearby penitentiary and crews with trained bloodhounds attempted to track where the men may have gone. The Eugene Guard offered descriptions of the escapees to aid in their search. Quote, William O. Bowen, 42, believed the leader, record of habitual forger, jail and asylum breaker, crafty, participant in killing and escape from hospital here 12 years ago, height 5 foot 9 and a half inches, weight 164, dark hair, gray eyes, wearing a gray suit, and leather slippers. A.R. Carter, 26, height 5 feet, 9.5 inches, weight 143, brown hair, gray eyes, wearing gray worsted suit and hickory shirt. George Farron, 66, height 5 foot 6 inches, 
weight 122, dark hair and blue eyes, wearing dungarees and leather and leather slippers. Adolf Bowser, 58, height 5 foot 7 inches, weight 145, brown hair, gray eyes, wearing dungarees and leather slippers, ex-convict. Elmer Becker, 27, height 5 foot 10 inches, weight 165, brown hair, blue eyes, wearing corduroy trousers, a hickory shirt, and leather slippers. Dean Welch, 18, height 5 foot 11 and a half inches, weight 164, brown hair, blue eyes, wearing bib overalls, and probably a coat, end quote. Later in the evening, on Monday, October 9th, 1933, a farmer from Gervais, Oregon, about 14 miles north of Salem, was stunned when a man walked into his house without knocking. He then asked to use the telephone to call his sister. The farmer's family members appeared to recognize the man as one of the fugitives. One of the family members invited him to sit and have something to eat, while another phoned the police from the other room. While the man was eating, officers arrived and promptly arrested him. He was later identified as 27-year-old Elmer Becker from Multnomah County. He was immediately returned to the asylum after fewer than 24 hours on the lam. With one man captured and five still on the loose, law enforcement continued searching for the others. Elmer Becker had told law enforcement that three of his fellow escapees, Bowen, Carter, and Welch, were headed north, while the other two, Farron and Bowser, were headed south. Search crews were sent in both directions to look for the men. At the same time, tips came in from the community members uh, who claimed to have seen the escapees. Around 9 a.m. on Monday morning, also in Gervais, a farmer reported that a strange man offered to pay him for a ride to Portland. The farmer declined, but offered the man a ride to the nearby Duck Inn where he could catch a bus to Portland. The man purchased a package of cigarettes, but disappeared 10 minutes before the arrival of the bus. The man later realized that the stranger had matched the description of William Bowen. People as far south as Klamath Falls claimed to have seen the men getting on and off trains in the area. One person claimed to have seen Bowen in Portland on October 11th. Another claimed to have seen him in Hood River near the border to Washington. But each time, as soon as law enforcement arrived, the mystery men seemed to disappear. Another day went by. On Thursday, October 12th, a report was received that two men with their feet wrapped in sacks appeared near Hubbard, north of Salem, and asked for shoes and matches. Law enforcement then intensified their search of the area. They later received a call from a local citizen that he and his son had observed two men who met the descriptions of Adolf Bowser and George Farron stealing a rowboat near Wheatland Ferry. The ferry sits on the Willamette River, only 14 miles from the asylum. A police speedboat tracked down the men, and they reportedly surrendered without resistance. Bowser and Farron were then returned to the asylum. The three remaining escapees included the notoriously dangerous William Bowen and the two youngest and perhaps most vulnerable accomplices, Alvin Carter and Dean Welch. Days went by with no sight of the men. Then on Monday, October 16, 1933, eight days after their escape, Alvin Carter and Dean Welch were captured by state police on railroad tracks near Oregon City. 
The men said they had traveled northward from Salem at night. They had abandoned their leather hospital slippers and wore leather boots and work shoes. They had next to nothing to eat for the previous three days, they said. They had a few potatoes in a sack and a few nuts in their pockets. Carter and Welch were also returned to the asylum. That left only William Bowen at large after the escape. Again, reports of sightings came in from everywhere. Bowen had been seen in Klamath County. Bowen had been seen in a car near Weed, California. Bowen had been seen on a farm in Doris, California. He had been seen on a train. He seemed to be everywhere and nowhere all at once. Days went by, then weeks. Finally, a month later, on November 10th, 1933, reports came in that Bowen was using the name John Grubbs and was engaging in check fraud somewhere in the Midwest, but he still couldn't be found. News reports stated that Bowen had indeed gone north, not to Portland, but over the river to Vancouver, Washington, where he picked up a car he had stashed there years earlier and started driving east. He had been accused of forging checks from a Portland bank all over the Midwest and parts of the East Coast, using many of his 49 aliases. It seemed like Bowen would never get caught. And then, on April 20th, 1934, over six months after his escape, a headline on the Eugene Register Guard read, William Bowen, Bad Check Man, Finally Caught. <laughs> what a title, Bad Check Man. He was finally caught in McAllister, Oklahoma, on an auto theft charge. Police said Bowen had one of the longest criminal records of any man listed in the Portland Record Bureau. The article ends with this, quote, It is doubtful if he will be returned to Oregon. He's wanted in a hundred or more cities throughout the country, and the federal government may now have a charge against him, end quote. But somehow, despite being picked up in Oklahoma, Bowen was apprehended again two months later on June 14th, 1934, this time in Missouri on forgery charges. I, I really don't know how this man kept escaping or evading charges, but he clearly didn't spend very long in prison or in jail. Uh, he was captured again in January 1936 in Phoenix, Arizona. And this is where I just, I had to stop. There were just so many, many, many crimes. Uh, they were endless. And I'm telling you, this could be an entire podcast just on William Bowen. So fast forward through the many other arrests until I learned that at some point he was put in federal prison where he remained until he was 65 years old. William Bowen died in 1963 at age 72, 30 years after his escape from Oregon State Hospital. He undoubtedly had one of the longest rap sheets and list of su successful escapes in Oregon history. All right. Final story. I sort of debated whether or not to tell one more, but this one really is too good not to share. It has some truly stunning, shocking, and unbelievable moments. So this is the story of the 1991 escape of Michael P. McCormick. Michael McCormick was convicted for the 1978 double murder of his live-in girlfriend, Cherry Baumgartner, and her 11-year-old son, Dennis. McCormick was found guilty for the murder of Cherry and sentenced to 20 years in prison. In a strange turn of events, he was found guilty except for insanity, for the murder of her son, even though Dennis had been killed less than an hour after his mother. 
I don't know the circumstances of the murder other than the cause and manner of their deaths, but the two different adjudications is really interesting to me. And I really wish I knew more details about how they got to that conclusion. Anyway, McCormick ended up only serving nine years of his 20 year sentence for the murder of Cherry. He still, however, had a hold for his guilty except for insanity sentence. So he was transferred from the penitentiary to Oregon State Hospital on September 11th, 1987 to serve that sentence. McCormick was diagnosed with manic depression. That's what we now call bipolar disorder, uh, which is generally characterized by intermittent episodes of high energy, irritability, impulsivity, sometimes psychosis, um, and then sometimes the low lows of depression and suicidality, although not everybody with bipolar disorder gets the low lows. Uh, McCormick lived on a medium security ward and earned pass privileges for outings in the community. So it may seem shocking to some people. Uh, the folks adjudicated guilty except for insanity could go out in the community. They generally have to show a pattern of good behavior, earn the privileges, and be escorted to their destination. This is still done occasionally in certain institutions. Unfortunately, back in the late 80s, early 90s at Oregon State Hospital, the, these rules were loosely followed. So in some cases, outings weren't even supervised, which really, really baffles me. Even more shocking, sometimes patients were allowed to go out alone to walk the streets of Salem without supervision. So as you might guess, this would most certainly lead to problems as it did with Michael McCormick. In the four years from the time of his admission to the time of his escape, he had been allowed to go out on outings about at least 65 times. So doing the math, that works out to about once, maybe twice per month. In April 1990, McCormick and another patient were approved to go on an unsupervised pass in Portland. Unbeknownst to staff, McCormick chartered an airplane to Portland for a joyride. How he managed this, I have no idea, but somehow he did it. And staff were completely unaware until a month later in May 1990, when Cormick began bragging about his trip to other patients. Hospital staff called Buswell Aviation, who confirmed that, yes, he had, in fact, chartered a, an airplane. McCormick was then transferred from a medium security unit to 48C, a maximum security unit, and he lost his past privileges. Also in May 1990, staff found a knife in McCormick's possession, and it was promptly confiscated. This may seem obvious, but there really is no good reason for a patient to have sharp objects. Not only are they a potential danger to peers or to staff, they could also be dangerous to the patient's own safety. He was charged with possession of weapon by an inmate and remained on the max security unit. Despite these two major incidents, over the following year, McCormick's clinicians determined that he was doing remarkably well. He was deemed a model patient and within the year earned back his past privileges. And to me, this is absurd. Today, patients are rated on their risk for escape. Off the top of my head, I can think of several patients who had failed escape attempts back in the 80s who are still considered at high risk of escape, even though they haven't attempted anything in 30-something years. But anyway, I, I digress. So a year went by, 
And Michael McCormick was considered a model patient. He was going to be up for a release review in May 1992. But although he was on a maximum security unit, he had once again been granted pass privileges for outings in the community. How? how? I, I, yeah. Anyway, so when he and a group of other patients went on an escorted trip to the Supreme Court Law Library on March 14th, 1991, no one seemed concerned until McCormick was suddenly gone. <laughs> a search quickly began, but McCormick was nowhere to be found. Back at the hospital, staff found that McCormick had created a hit list of hospital employees written on his personal computer. I'm sorry. Did you just ask if they said personal computer in 1991? Yes, they did. I'm all for patients getting education in computer literacy, especially today. It's good for job purposes. But a personal computer in 1991? My family didn't even have a computer in 1991. But a psych patient on a max security ward got one? That seems odd to me. Anyway, he had a hit list on his computer, so naturally the staff who had been on the list were concerned for their safety, and it was essential that the man be found, and soon. Days went by, and weeks, with no sign of Michael McCormick. There was a nationwide search for the escaped patient. The family of his victims, Cherry and Dennis Baumgartner, feared that he might come back for them and harm them. I can hardly imagine how afraid they must have been during that time. Fortunately, 20 days after his escape, on April 3rd, the FBI located McCormick in Canton, Ohio. He was at a Western Union office in downtown, in a downtown YMCA, picking up money orders. He was promptly arrested and taken to jail, where he initially refused to answer questions about his disappearance. Eventually, however, he began to talk. And whoo boy, did he have a lot to say. He told KATV, KATU News in Portland that, quote, it was so easy to escape, it was pathetic, end quote. The Statesman Journal on April 12, 1991, reported that he took a taxi from Salem to Portland, went to his bank and cashed a check for $3,000, then went to a Meyer and Frank department store. Quote, I bought, I bought eyeliner, all the women's cosmetics I could get my hands on, he said. The only crime I committed while at large was dressing up as a woman, I spent 90% of my journey as abroad. Pfft, cute language, dude. Now, if you've seen a picture of McCormick that I posted on the Facebook group page, you'll notice that this guy has a massive mustache. And I imagine he had to have shaved that off at some point. Although the only other picture of him is bald on the top of his head, but still with this mega mustache. It's a pretty impressive mustache. I'm not going to lie. Uh, quote, McCormick also said he got help from friends during his three weeks of freedom, but he declined to identify them. The Portland television station said McCormick apparently saved his money from Social Security payments, end quote. He had money available. He just couldn't retrieve it in his name for obvious reasons. He was waiting for a fake ID to come in, but until then, he had to rely on others to wire him money from Western Union by using phony names and phony sender names and code words. By dressing as a woman, McCormick was able to travel around the country undetected. His travel took him through California, Texas, and Illinois before finally getting caught in Ohio. McCormick seemed almost surprised by how easy it was to escape during the routine outing. 
If I could do that and get away with it, he said later, there are other people in there who are very, very unstable on their medications. You could be putting a trusting public in a very jeopardizing situation. To which I say, and you weren't a danger to the public, sir? <laughs> you killed two people and had a hit list. I think the public was already in a jeopardizing situation. This is what I've noticed is fairly typical of offender mentality. They often think that everyone else is far more dangerous or far more mentally ill than they are. Everyone else is the problem, not them. Unfortunately, I couldn't find what happened to McCormick after, afterward. After his capture, there were no more details about what happened to him. Since he had been facing now two escape charges and the weapons charge from the previous year, I assume he went back to prison, but I couldn't confirm that. What I could, could, could confirm is that the public demanded changes in hospital safety procedures. They wanted to see tighter control on past privileges, more contraband searches on patients and visitors, increased staff training, and a security department within the forensic program. And also, even in 1991, administration was recognizing that the aging facilities were a liability. There was already a plan in place to close two of the wards that were becoming unlivable. And need I remind you, the demolition of this building didn't begin until 2009. So for almost 20 years, patients and staff lived and worked in a building that was quite literally crumbling around them. I would say I'm surprised, but this problem is still happening at other facilities. State hospitals are just not a priority until an escape or something else terrible happens that forces change. And that brings us to the end of this episode about the escapes from Oregon State Hospital. As I mentioned at the start, there are many more escapes that I just didn't have time to discuss, but I hope you learned something in these four stories. The next episode will be the final episode about Oregon State Hospital. We'll discuss some of the enduring legends and lore about the hospital, the spooky underground tunnels that everybody loves talking about, the mystery of why patients began suddenly dying at breakfast one day, and the reason Oregon State Hospital was the focus of a Pulitzer Award-winning publication. I hope you come back to listen as it's going to be an exciting episode. Thank you again so much for listening. Special thanks this week to Mandy for sharing the podcast with others. I really appreciate it. Uh, please come back and remember, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening to Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. Once again, I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Gallup. Cover image is by Christopher Payne. Check out my website at behindthewallspodcast.buzzsprout.com. Follow the podcast and learn more on Facebook at Behind the Walls Podcast and Instagram at Behind the Walls Pod. For questions or recommendations, email me at behindthewallspodcast at gmail.com. You can find new episodes every Monday on Amazon Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find and listen to the show, and I would be so grateful. Please stay tuned for more episodes of Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. Until next time.